Uh, we were in the um, midst of Lumpur's instruction about uh, meditation practice, uh, formal uh, the details of of uh, the guidance for the people on the retreat in uh, IMS, Insight Meditation Society, 1979. And so just uh, complete the last part of that talk. <coughs> Practicing here this evening, we have meditated together for an hour and now stopped. It might be that your mind has stopped practicing completely and hasn't continued with the reflection. That's not the right way to do it. When we stop, all that should stop is the formal sitting meditation. Keep a state of meditation and reflection going at all times. Just taking a walk and seeing dead leaves on the ground can provide an opportunity to contemplate impermanence. We are no different from the leaves. When we get old, we're going to shrivel up and die. Other people are the same. We should make efforts to raise the mind to the level of constant contemplation and awareness like this, whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down. This is practicing meditation correctly, following the mind carefully at all times. I've often said that if you don't practice consistently, it's like drops of water. The practice is not a continuous, uninterrupted flow. Mindfulness is not sustained evenly. The important point is that the mind does the practice and nothing else. The body doesn't do it, the mind does the work. If you understand this clearly, you'll see that you don't always have to be in formal meditation for the mind to know samadhi. So this is something I um, picked up and I emphasize when I'm leading retreats and um, meditation days and so on and so forth. And uh, often I'll, uh, uh, I'll point out that when you ring the bell, the mind thinks, okay, now the meditation has finished, and then um, we can sort of relax or go about our, our way and, uh, and do our thing. And um, so this is something that I mention over and over and over again, and nauseam, that rather than thinking the meditation is stopping with the bell ringing, uh, it should be more, it's more helpful to consider it's going from formal practice to informal practice. So those of you who've done retreats with me will have heard me say that over and over and over again. But it's an important uh, thing. And um, the, uh, the, there's various different uh, dimensions to that. Uh, you know, one of which is that we're conditioned to think that sitting with our eyes closed or walking up and down doing form, that that is the meditation and the rest is, is a sort of filler. Uh, but uh, Lumpur Cha made a, an, an effort over many, many years to... Uh, say, uh, encourage this quality of continuity. And um, he would often use the, a word play. The word for um, uh, connection is santati, or, or uh, the connectedness in Pali is santati. And the word for peace is santi. And so he would often put those together. Like, if you have uh, santati, connectedness, or con continuity in the practice, consistency in the practice, then the result of that is santi, or, or peacefulness. And this image of, of drops of water coming from a tap, and then if the, the water is um, poured more, uh, say, firmly, uh, then the, the, the drops join up together and you get a continuous stream. So that was also an image he used very, very often. Uh, another of the aspects about... Um, 
sort of formal meditation and informal meditation that I like to point out is how uh, we tend to think of any effort or doing as somehow kind of burdensome or stressful, even the, the doing of meditation. And I like to point out that often the most peaceful moment of meditation is when the bell goes and you, you, you don't, have to, don't have to be meditating anymore. There's a, oh, thank goodness that's over. And so now I can relax, which is, if you think about it for a second, it's totally the wrong way around. It's like the meditation is supposed to be the relaxation and peacefulness and then the, uh, the sort of getting back to the rest of your life is, is uh, in a, if it's being held in that way, is a bit more burdensome or stressful. But it's because we make the work of meditation into a, 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 a something you know, personal, a thing I should be doing, and because of how uh, self-view weaves its um, weaves its presence into uh, the the practice, and effort becomes based on I and me and mine, me doing something to get some result, me pursuing some particular um, goal to get some something for me to be more of this, and so I can be less of that then the more that there is I, me, and mine woven into to the effort of meditation, then the more stressful the meditation is. So the, the trick is to learn how effort can be made free of conceit and self-view. So that's uh, another element of that. Um, but uh, uh, this aspect of, um, say, con- uh, continuity of practice and sustaining this aspect of reflection and as you said, you're looking at the dead leaves on the ground, that they also, they are teaching the Dhamma just as much as somebody sitting up in a seat and uh, giving a talk is teaching that the, the, the blowing of the wind, the coming of the changes of day and night and the dead leaves on the ground or the new leaves on the trees, <coughs> they are all teaching the Dhamma in their own way. Are there any questions, thoughts, reflections? continue. Once you recognize this, you'll be developing awareness at all times and in all postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. If you are maintaining mindfulness as an even and unbroken flow, it's as if the drops of water have joined to form a smooth and continuous stream. Mindfulness is present from moment to moment, and accordingly there will be awareness of mental objects at all times. If the mind is restrained and composed, with uninterrupted mindfulness, you'll know the wholesome and the unwholesome mental states that arise. You will know the mind that is calm and the mind that is confused and agitated. Wherever you go, you'll be practicing. If you train the mind in this way, your meditation will mature quickly and successfully. Please don't misunderstand. These days it's common for people to go on retreats for several days where they don't have to speak or do anything but meditate. Maybe you've been on a silent retreat for a week or two, afterwards returning to your normal life. You might leave thinking you've, quote, done vipassana, unquote, and because you feel you know what it's all about, you return to your old habits of sensual indulgence. When you do this, what happens? Before long, none of the fruits of vipassana will be left. If you do a, if you do a lot of unskillful things that disturb and upset the mind, wasting everything, Then next year you go back, do another retreat for several days or weeks, come out, carry on partying and drinking. That isn't the path to progress. There are uh, a couple of um, particular points uh, to pick up on there. Uh, Then if if we have a a continuity uh, of mindfulness and awareness, then 
whether the mind is, is calm and focused or whether there's a lot of agitation, then there isn't a, a value judgment being made about that. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the, uh, the, third found, uh, the third foundation of mindfulness, Jitanupasana, is, it's, it's very simply stated in the Sutta, but it, it's very significant because it simply says, knowing the agitated mind is agitated, the unagitated mind is unagitated. Knowing the angry mind is angry, the, uh, the mind free of anger is free of anger. Knowing the lustful mind is filled with lust, the mind free of lust is, is free of lust. Knowing the mind um, expanded, knowing, uh, knowing it is expanded, or the contracted in the mind, knowing it is contracted. So there's no value judgment given in that. Uh, there's no sort of, this is good, that's bad, more of this, less of that, but rather... Uh, for each of those, it says establishing the mindfulness uh, sufficient to know there is this. That is the the establishment of, of mindfulness in that respect. So that that uh, I feel is is very uh, very important and very uh, much a, a, a kind of feature of Lumpo Sumedho Lumpo Cha's teaching. Because that which knows anger isn't angry. That which knows agitation isn't agitated. <laughs> so that in that genuine establishment of, of mindfulness is like, oh, <laughs> this is a busy one today. You can know the mind filled with, with uh, all kinds of, kind of old blur of, uh, of, uh, of thinking. If you're in the middle of, of some family argument or some kind of uh, uh, busyness in the, in the city or you have a work project with uh, 101 details that you've got to juggle, then, yeah, there can be a lot of thought, but the, the mind that says, oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a busy day today, it's a, a lot going on. It's still there. There's those thoughts or that noise, that activity is still in the in the perceptual field, but the the mind isn't getting entangled with it or identified with it. And so I feel that's a extremely significant um, point of the the uh, Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, it doesn't go into detail here about uh, Lumpur Chah's comments, but I think. Uh, when he was at IMS and, and giving teachings there, he did speak about this um, uh, uh, fairly, uh, fairly often, uh, or kind of repeatedly and, and uh, in very direct ways. I think he got the from his conversations with with uh, Jack Cornfield and Paul Brighter and, and Joseph Pomacro. Then uh, uh, he um, sort of got a sense of how people tended to, to operate or how they related to ten day retreats and or three months retreats and such like. And um, he doesn't mention this, the same imagery here, but an, uh, another example he gave is that it's like being a boxer. Um, you know, and there's a lot of boxing goes on in Thailand, so it's quite frequent, frequently appears in uh, Dhamma talks. So it's like being a boxer, that you, you, you get in the ring, you have a fight, you get, you get beaten up, and um, you have all various kinds of injuries, and you, you, you finish the fight, and you come out, and you, you recover from your, your injuries, your bruises, your cuts, and... And then, uh, just when your your um, your body's recovered from the last fight, you get back in the ring and get and get beaten up again. And so that um, so it is, isn't it easier not to get in the ring and get beaten up? You know that uh, your uh, your uh, uh, say not maintaining a sense of well-being or a, a healthy state by by functioning in that way. And so uh, I'm not sure. Um, if uh, uh, if it was you know just on this one occasion he uh, he sort of talks about that um, uh, doing lots of unskillful things that disturb and upset the mind then uh, but that that image of the boxing ring and going uh, and getting injured and then just getting back in the ring and getting be- getting beaten up again was was uh, something that was um, 
uh, you know, has been quoted many times uh, over the years. Any thoughts, questions? Boxing isn't quite so f such a strong feature in people's lives in <laughs> in the West, but uh, in uh, Thailand, particularly rural Thailand, it's quite a, a strong feature. So, you need to contemplate until you see the harmful effects of such behavior. This is what is meant by renunciation. See the harm in drinking and going out on the town. Reflect and see the harm inherent in all the different kinds of unskillful behavior that you're accustomed to indulging in until that harm becomes fully apparent. This will provide the impetus for you to take a step back and change your ways. Then you'll find some real peace. To realize peace of mind, you have to see clearly the disadvantages and pitfalls in such forms of behavior. This is practicing in the correct way. If you do a silent retreat for seven days where you don't have to speak or get involved with anyone, and then are chatting, gossiping, and indulging all, uh, all over for another seven months, how will you gain any real or lasting benefit from those seven days of meditation? I would encourage you all to try to understand this point. It's necessary to speak in this way so that habits that are faulty become clear to you, and thus you'll be able to give them up. You could say the reason you came here is to learn how to avoid doing the wrong things in the future. What happens when you do the wrong things? It leads you to a state of agitation and suffering where there's no goodness in the mind. It's not the way to peace. That's how it is. But many places where meditation is taught don't come to grips with this. Really, you have to conduct your daily life in a consistently calm and restrained way. This is a form of reminder to you all, so I'll ask your I will ask you for your forgiveness. Some of you might feel I'm just scolding you. Yeah, the old monk is telling us off. But it's not like that. It's just that you may need reminders, because in meditation you have to be constantly turning your attention to the practice. Please try to practice consistently. See the disadvantages of practicing inconsistently and insincerely and try to, to sustain a dedicated and continuous effort in the practice. It can then become a realistic possibility that you might put an end to the mental afflictions. Another way that he put that in a different, um, different Dhamma teachings, uh, he said that until you see the pain of attachment, then you're never going to let go. So that's that's the, so the, the the formula of it is that it's only when we really experience you know ow <laughs> if this is done this is the result this this is painful this this really hurts then that's uh, that's what teaches us and so that uh, uh, usually we we learn more directly from discomfort and suffering than we do from comfort and, and happiness um, but it, it's also um, part of that aspect of wise reflection, considering, again, not as some sort of imposed uh, morality from outside, like being judged or scolded or, or um, shamed by some kind of outside force, but rather seeing that you know, if you put your hand into <laughs> a fire where there is burning wood, you will, you will scorch your skin and it'll be painful for a long time and you'll need to, to dress the injuries and, uh, uh, and harm will be done. So be careful if you're close to a, a fire, you know, that, that because of the, the damage that can be done. So the, um, uh, in the, the Dhamma teachings, you know, the, uh, again, the, when the Buddha speaks about this, uh, it's, 
from a very pragmatic and natural perspective. And so you have um, a pair of qualities that are talked about very often are uh, asada and adinava. So asada is the gratification. So when something is attractive or pleasant or exciting, um, then the mind uh, inclines towards that. It's something that's pleasant to see or hear or smell or taste or touch or, and so on. And that, that there's a pull. So there is the gratification. There's the, yes, this is delicious, this is good, this is delightful, this is exciting. You know, I like this. There is that asada, but its partner is adinava. The front and back of the same hand. And uh, the adinava is the liability or the, the debt or the, the, the downside. So that, yes, there is the gratification, but then there's the expectation uh, of more or the, or the expectation or the, the wish that that gratification is going to be something that is permanently pleasing and can, can fulfill you in a, in a complete way. And so the adinava is the liability or the downside, the... Um, the the detriment um, and so that they are with respect to to sense desire sense pleasure then uh, again it's not put forward in a kind of negative way or or, the, or a pejorative way that uh, you know, uh, that beautiful sounds or delicious food is somehow kind of evil or wrong or corrupting but just you know if you get over focused on this and you, you make the mind dependent on it then it will be dependent on it <laughs> if you uh, invest in this uh, then you ha- there's a bill to pay, there's a price that goes with it. Because of this, there is that. So it's a simple relationship of causality. Here's the cause, here's the effect. And so that, uh, in terms of, of wise reflection and a basis for renunciation, it's a lot to do with that kind of simplicity or avoiding causing ourselves you know, difficulty or harm or obstruction, confusion. But you know, if this is followed, then this is going to be the result. Therefore, if the impulse of, oh, I want to follow that, to, to listen to this, or see this, or taste this, or touch this, recognizing, well, if that's followed through, this is going to be the cost. You know, here's the gratification, here's the danger. Okay, so then that renunciation, the readiness to know that feeling of attraction or, or interest and excitement, to know it, not suppressing it or saying it's not evil or bad or wrong to feel it, but it's recognizing, yes, that's attractive, but no, I don't need it. It's, it's not something that has to be owned or held or followed or whatever. So it's not you know, blaming or um, suppressing the, the, the feelings of gratification or attraction to pleasant sense objects, but just recognizing that that feeling of interest or excitement, it can arise and do its thing and then it fades away. And... What is, in a way, the the um, the, the 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 kind of um, the the great power of the Buddha's teaching is that when those impulses are not followed, then uh, if the if the if your mind is paying attention, then you realize well that impulse wasn't followed and nothing is missing intrinsically. Like rather than feeling that oh I should have got that or I would be life would be better if I had this or uh, um. I'm in a state of lack because I haven't got that. Like, well, no, that's the lie. <laughs> that's the. Or you know, you can test it for yourself. But that's the the in a way the the linchpin, the sort of centerpiece of the four noble truths is that that the desire, like I've got to have, or I can't. Uh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be unhappy if I don't get such and such, or I've got to be this or get that. It's uh, it's not entirely true. It's a passing impression, and when that impression 
passes, that wave of interest or excitement or attraction passes, then this is the, the, um, the, the powerful and liberating news is uh, nothing is missing from this moment when that impulse is not, is not followed. Aha! <laughs> so renunciation is not based on a sort of enduring a state of lack, but rather it's finding that quality of wholeness that is, an, uh, in, that is the Dhamma itself, which is the, the fundamental nature of, of mind, that, is, that there was never anything really lacking, there was never anything really missing. It was just the, the message of that passing impression of, of attraction or excitement or, or appeal of some kind or another. So I'm not sure quite how uh, Lumpur's words were taken <laughs> to uh, taken to heart. Probably a few people had sunk in at that at that gathering, but um, maybe a few people said that, that monk scolding us. <laughs> Get, uh, wait, wait till the, the the real teachers come back and they can take over and give us the the more suitable teaching. But um, that that was um, it was also significant. When Lumpur sat down with a number of the IMS teachers, with Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Jackie uh, Schwartz, um, Jackie Mandel as she is uh, now, um, and Jack Cornfield, he made a point of emphasising this. He said, "You know, as if you're in the role of being a Dhamma teacher, it's it's your job to quote unquote stab the hearts of your students. That's your job." <laughs> That if you always just say things that please people's preferences and opinions and habits, you're not really doing your job. It's it's your uh, uh, your role is to present the, this um, this challenge to the students out of kindness and compassion for them. And again, I'm not quite sure how many of the uh, the vipassana teachers really took that on, uh, but. Uh, he was. Um, it was notable that he uh, he said that, and the expression, the, the northeast Thai expression, is to to stab the heart, is to um, the, to directly go against that, um, going against the stream of, of of attachment and opinion and craving, the the asavas, the outflows of views and opinions, sense desire, uh, becoming and and ignorance. Those four outflows. So, any thoughts, questions? That's the end of that particular instruction of Lumpur's. Any comments, disagreements? <laughs> Please, do, you do feel free to to um, ask anything that uh, or make any uh, reflections that seem useful. Yes. Um, Speaking in charge of the kitchen, one in charge of the kitchen. Jai of an expression that Rampur used to use a lot, Nanam Jai, mm-hmm. the, having a cool heart, a cool head and, and a warm heart. And I, while you were while you were reading these last few last few days, this chapter, I c- it kept bouncing in my in my awareness about how we can find a way to let the likes and the dislikes let go and find some sort of balance in, in, in what you explained the other day as being the Dhamma, mm-hmm. the everyday everyday life. Does that make any good reference? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, was a sort of everyday life samadhi. Some, 
Yeah, na, uh, nan jai, um, I'm not sure exactly what would be the best translation for that. Um, it's like the refreshment for the heart. Chai mai? Nam jai. Nourishment? Yes, yes. Nourishment for the heart. Uh, so in a way it's uh, having compassion for your own impulses like, I love this I hate that I can't stand this oh, what about me all of that uh, like a, a compassion for a, the impulses of a young child that is far more sort of reactive and motivated by likes and dislikes and, and just expresses what it, what it feels and so that that cool, that cooling, refreshing, nourishing, like water sprinkled on dry ground, you know, that kind of um, uh, the the cooling, refreshing, nourishing, compassionate quality, nam jai. It's the, the um, uh, helping the heart to be nourished, to have skillful attitudes towards the the many and various instinctual feelings we have. You know, having a, a human body and the conditioning of a human life, then naturally. We like comfort, we fear pain, we like approval, we fear rejection, um, we like success, we fear failure, and so on and so forth. And that these are powerful natural instincts um, that having, a bo- <laughs> having been born, <laughs> we'll get. You know, it's the, the, uh, uh, that array of different experiences. And so receiving those, those patterns of, of, of desire and fear, attraction, aversion, comfort, discomfort, and taking those into the heart and then relating, training the heart to relate to those uh, likes and dislikes, comforts and discomforts in a, in a balanced way so that we're not fearing and hating pain and running away from it and trying to just get, get numb or get, uh, get dis- away, get distracted from pain, getting pain to end or trying to multiply the pleasant experiences by acquiring objects or status or, or um, you know, uh, achievements of one kind or another. And so that, um, it's that in a way, it's a cultivating that uh, compassionate and, and wholesome relationship to, to this life, this body, this, this mind. And to, anyway, not to be excited about your own story. <laughs> Here we are, this is a human life, it's like this, and it happens to have this particular configuration so in a, in a sort of in a, in a caring you know sincere and caring way but not identified with the particular details of your this mind's conditioning this this story this background this this kind of particular set of events that are taking shape in, in this life you also met you also got me hooked on to Jill Fronsdale so I listened to one of his postcards yesterday <laughs> uh, the other day and it was all is well it just I took the first one that came on and actually it relates to this mm-hmm. all is well so let the monkey mind get its own monkey door and monkey playground in the hair in the, in the and 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 just make it it sounds very new agey he says all is well <laughs> let go but that's how that's that's the trick to to understand all these um, clinging about I like this I don't like this there's gratification here I mean connected to mm-hmm. what you were discussing. Oh, so yeah, it can sound new agey, but uh, 
Um, yeah, Master Xunhua, one of his his most commonly used aphorisms was "Everything is okay." Yeah, exactly. Which can sound very loose, very Californian. <laughs> but the, his monastery, even Wat Bapong, seemed like a kind of a not exactly a holiday camp, but um, it was pretty pretty rigorous level of training there. In the in the early days, I don't know how it is now, but it was expected everyone who was older than ten and and uh, sorry, uh, yeah, older than ten and younger than seventy was expected to do the sitters practice all the time. Like none of the none of the monks and nuns and novices were ever expected to lie down, ever. <laughs> One vegan meal a day. That's standard for everybody. Doing it all the time, so it was uh, very, very rigorous training. But the motto being "everything is okay," <laughs> <laughs> so that's the the framework is extraordinary simplicity and rigor. But then within that, to to develop, you know, everything is okay, and that uh, in that sense of of seeing your likes and dislikes, your comfort, your discomfort, you know, in terms of, of dhamma. And they're also speaking about monkeys, um, in an, an, an others of uh, Lumpur Chah's teachings, which uh, um, uh, <coughs> he uh, he points out that you know that that's the nature of the mind is to like to like a monkey likes to jump around. You know, if you if you've ever had a monkey in your home, <laughs> you know, that they they don't sit still, they like to do stuff, they like to jump around. That's how monkeys are. And so if you expect the monkey to to sit still and, and Obey your rules. You're you're asking too much. You're, you're, but if you know it's a monkey, it likes to jump around. That's its nature. Then, um, then you can work with that. You're not expecting it to be different. You're not saying that 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 jumping around and being busy is intrinsically good and helpful. But it's how monkeys are. <laughs> and then, as he points out, if you don't understand monkeys, you're likely to be reborn as a monkey. So it's a way of uh, really having compassion for the conditioning of your own mind, the kind of pattern of, of how this being is, the things that it's attracted to, the things it's afraid of, the things that that are kind of weird and and uh, challenging, and the things that that are uh, say really encouraging or have a sense of home and security. Okay, well that that's. That particular sound, or that particular um, those words, or that smell, that flavor, uh, that, that that says yes, home, and that says ooh, danger, ooh, I don't know what that is, and to get to know those those patterns of conditioning. You're not thinking that peace is going to come when all that conditioning is gone, but rather, no, this is the the flavor of the world, and that um, that um, openness of heart and readiness to attune to the different. Those different patterns. It's it's like, um, uh, say, really receiving the the conditioning of your life and using the the condition of this life for the you know the best purposes. And also, it creates a, an environment, the most helpful environment for learning. That uh, you are when because you, you can be much more straightforward in recognizing. I haven't got a clue how that works. <laughs> Why do I feel like that? Why is that? Why does that send me off? I have no idea. Inter- interesting rather, oh, I don't want to be that way, or if only I was different, that would be good, or I can't let anybody else know that I get lost uh, or upset like that. Rather, oh, that's a weird one. 
I have no idea what, what drives that. that. And so the mind is interested to learn about how those, those natural patterns operate rather than, than pushing them away or, or grasping hold and identifying with them. So was that a Dhamma talk of Gil's uh, in a, on a retreat or just a talk it to his? It was a talk at the IMS uh-huh. 2017. It's titled um, All is Well. All is Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so carry on. So again, we change to a different location. <laughs> Another change of phase. And this next uh, part is a, um, a talk to candidates for ordination. And um, I'm not sure, there's no date put on, on this. It's not, uh, it's not clear when this was, this was given. And um, Paul Brighter, the translator, doesn't make a list of, of the uh, origins of the particular teachings. But um, this, it, this could have been given before my own ordination. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was around that time my big ordination was in April of 79 so it was just before Lumpur went off to, to Britain and to the, to the States and it was also on that, that trip that uh, Chidhurst Monastery was opened up June of 1979 was when Chidhurst opened so uh, he went to IMS uh, in the spring April, May he was in America and then he came back to England and they just moved out of London and gone to uh, to Chidhurst. So that uh, BBC film, The Buddha Comes to Sussex, uh, that was uh, filmed that, that same uh, summer. That, uh, classic BBC production. Probably many people have seen that. So it's a, a, a it's a BBC uh, film, and it was a, a follow up to The Mindful Way, which was a open university program. But uh, the the same person, David Thompson, did the um, made the film, made the, the Buddha Comes to Sussex. And, and I, I was actually the one, uh, we, uh, when I was uh, at Wat Bapong, and then uh, this letter arrived from uh, from the BBC to Ajahn Chah, it was in English, and so I, there was, uh, my Thai was not very good, but I was given the, uh, the, um, the, the task of translating the letter to Lumpur Chah. And, uh, and so... Um, and I said, well, the, the title of it is, you know, the Buddha comes to Sussex, Praputajau Mati Sussex. And he said, Putasasana, right? Like, the Buddhist religion comes to Sussex. I said, no, the Buddha comes to Sussex. He went, okay. <laughs> so he was like, okay, well, it's not quite how I would have put it, but uh, it was, uh, it's, uh, yeah, that was uh, one of the, the uh, few conversations I had with Lumpur Chah was translating that letter for him. So this is uh, uh, just before uh, an ordination ceremony, and the um, both for the pabajar, the, uh, the the when the, the nuns have their uh, precept ceremonies or uh, the uh, bhikkhus or novice uh, novice male novices, this uh, reflection is used as part of the the um, the ordination ceremony for for everybody going forth into the um, sort of monastic training. Contemplating the body, a talk to candidates for ordination. These robes are the banner of the Buddha. Think about it. Tomorrow you'll go to the village for alms. 
People will happily offer you their food and show respect. Even old people, their heads white and their backs bent, will show you respect. Why? Because of the power of the ochre robes. These robes are of ultimate power. If you don't use them correctly, the people in the villages will feel that you've lost your minds. Crazy will be their only verdict. When ordaining, going forth in the Buddhist religion, many instructions can be given. But today, I will not say too much. I'll follow the way of the ancient teachers who urged us to learn and practice meditation, specifically the five-fold meditation on hair of the head, bodily hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Just talking about them can seem like a game or a joke, but if they're carefully considered, they are extremely profound. So that, right from the, the Buddhist time, when they established the, uh, the ordination for novices and for, for monks and nuns, then this uh, five-fold contemplation, it's called the Kamatana, or the basis of practice, was included as part of the ordination. So it's actually the only meditation that's part of the ordination ceremony. So it's like, okay, this is what you're taking on. <laughs> Lesson number one, bring this to mind. And so uh, one of the, um, the parts of the ordination ceremony is that you, there's a formal statement of your intention. Uh, and uh, the Pali is sabadukha nisarana, which means uh, in order to, um, to let go of all dukkha, to transcend all suffering, sabadukha nisarana, nibbana sachikarnataya, in order to realize nibbana. That's the purpose, purpose of shaving your head, putting on the robes, and, uh, and taking up the renunciant life. Uh, that, and so... If that's the intention, to let go of all dukkha and to realize Nibbāna, then <laughs> the first obstacle to that uh, intention is self-view. So the, f- the first of the ten fetters, number one on the list, is Sakaya Ditti, self-view. So these reflections on hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, it's a sort of, uh, this is bringing the attention to the most primary habits of self-view, that when you look at this body, you say, I am this person. This is me, this is my, I, this is my, my nails, my skin, my face. Uh, you know, I am a male, I am f- from Britain, I am, this is who and what I am. So that reflection on the external features of the body, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, it's like this is something to bring attention to. This is the, your first obstacle to your fulfilling your intention to realize Nibbana is to get your head around the fact that the body is not self, that these are the external features that uh, people uh, in the world, in our, our human conditioning, have extraordinary strength and power and uh, uh, significance in people's lives. So this is <laughs> what needs to be uh, understood and to, to get past. That's the, the first fetter, the first obstacle. So right there. So it, it's kind of interesting to me, there's no mention of, of mindfulness of breathing or even mindfulness. Uh, in the uh, in the ordination ceremony, but this reflection on the the five external features of the body has been included from the the very earliest times. And again, Lumpur Chow would say point out this can seem a bit strange or weird. Why why focus on that? This is kind of everyone can see that we've got these things. So what, what's the big deal? It's like, but as he goes on to explain, it's because we know them, but we don't really know them. We're, we they're familiar. Uh, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. But because we uh, tend to relate to those from a worldly perspective and our habitual ways of seeing and thinking, that that's what you're looking at them for, to get a, a different view, a different perspective, a different uh, angle on those 
features of what we think we are as a, as a human being. It's also kind of interesting how sometimes uh, when you're on the arms round, it depends which town you're in, but sometimes you get the nail parlor, the hairdresser, tanning salon. <laughs> the dentist is usually somewhere else, but you have Kesa, Loma, Naka, and Tacho, you often sort of side by side on a single block of the, of the street. Uh, that uh, People spend it, huge amounts of, of money and time and effort on hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. The, the, um, uh, the amount of, of money and time and effort and, and significance that they, they have in, the, in our society, if, uh, if you look at it, you think, wow, that's, that actually carries a lot of weight in, <laughs> in the human world. And that uh, just by changing the perspective on that, then we can have a, uh, find ourselves living in a, a very, uh, with a very different perspective, a very, living in a different world. So to continue, we're here to learn meditation, and meditation is these five objects: venerable hair, venerable nails. So pra would be <laughs> venerable hair, venerable nails. These are our teachers. These are called the root meditations. These five meditations were born with us and have always been with us, but we haven't recognized them. So it's necessary to study the five root meditations as a basis for entering the path to nibbana. You can establish right view when you study a root meditation and contemplate its meaning. Some people will say that they already know it and ask, why do they need to study such a thing? In fact, they don't know. They don't really know their own hair, their own nails and the rest. They don't see them according to the truth. Meditation monks always hear such talk but are not moved by it. So this is to do with seeing these different aspects, the external features of the body, in a, a different context, so that we, um, we kind of, yes, they are familiar, but we have got used to seeing them in a, in a particular way. Hair of the head is born from the scalp, nourished by the body's fluids. Bodily hair and nails are the same. They're nothing to get obsessed with. When people dress themselves up, they're not really doing it in accordance with the true path. They're dressing up and adorning something that we don't see as being beautiful. Did you see how they dressed up the corpse in the meditation hall for the funeral recently? In such a case, we can observe very clearly that people are trying to make beautiful something that is really not beautiful or clean. One notable comment that uh, Ajahn Sujito made about uh, people in their coffins, he said that oftentimes people look better in their coffin than they did in real life. And, they, and even if they were very modest or people who never would sort of... Um, decorate themselves very much they get uh, dressed up as if they're on their way to a dance when they're put in their, put in their coffin so against their own will they can put the guy in a tuxedo and give a, uh, or put makeup on the person and uh, they would never have dreamed of, of agreeing to that when they were alive but like, they don't have a vote anymore since they're, they, they've passed away so that, uh, get dressed up as if you're on your way to a dance rather than lying in your coffin in truth, this body is not a clean thing. It's a matter of delusion, such as thinking the hair is beautiful. Actually, how could hair be beautiful? Is it something clean? There is nothing naturally clean or beautiful about hair. Put one beautiful hair in someone's food, and how much will they appreciate it? Who will want to eat it? Fingernails too. That's <laughs> toenails even more. There's only one toenail in the, in the curry. Put some hair on the ground and who will want to pick it up? If 
you see some skin or hair on the path to the village when you're going for arms, will you feel attracted to pick them up for any reason? This is the truth of them, that people are always making efforts to adorn and beautify them, which only serves to delude all of us. I'm not sure of the, the, the number nowadays. The number of years when I was living in the States, um, there was, uh, uh, it was quite a few years ago now, in about 2008, 2009, um, there was, uh, the, f the figure was something like $90 billion was spent worldwide on, uh, on uh, cosmetic surgery and either f uh, weight loss or weight gain products. $90 billion per year worldwide spent. It's probably double that by now. But, uh, and uh, also I remember I was down in Los Angeles for um, a, a, a series of talks by the Dalai Lama and um, somebody had a, uh, the people that we were staying with, they had a, a local telephone directory, we, back when they had phone directories, <laughs> the, a, a local sort of a commercial phone directory, like they, I don't know if they still have yellow pages in this country, but the, the section um, uh, of the, the, the local directory on cosmetic surgery was uh, about a centimeter thick, it was like you know, 150, 200 pages, of of uh, cosmetic surgery, beauty treatments of one kind or another. It was, it was uh, if I remember, it was at least a quarter, if not a third, of the whole directory was on this sort of Kesaloma Nakadantatacho, <laughs> hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, which again it just reflects the amount of time and energy and effort and, and money, uh, how much of people's hearts go into that that field, trying to get the the um, the arrangement <laughs> to be formed in a particular way to, to accord with one's preferences or wishes or to create a certain uh, impact on the world. So any thoughts, questions? Okay, to continue. We are easily deluded. We don't know the truth of hair, nails and the rest. So when we are ordained... These five things are taken up, and the nature of them is pointed out. Hair is not beautiful. Nails are not beautiful. Teeth are not beautiful. Skin is not beautiful. They are pointed out as unclean and unattractive. But people insist on trying to beautify them, so we are fooled. Not seeing the truth of them, we don't see the Buddha. These things conceal the Buddha from our sight. So we're taught to make our vision pure and clear in regard to these things. Think about them. Contemplate. You can sit and repeat the words and think about them. Skin. Hmm. The skin envelops the body and everything in it. If we were to peel off the skin, what would we see? Who could stay near us? If we peeled off the skin, leaving only the flesh on the bones, the little novices would dash out of the hall. They couldn't stay. They'd be freaked out. So, where is the beauty? Look and examine these five objects completely, and you'll see that they're not really beautiful. You will exhaust your interest in them rely on these five objects of meditation. But people like to be misled. We are misled by the adornment and beautification the world lives by. Style the hair, make up the skin, polish the nails, whiten the teeth. Make up everything. Make the things that are not really beautiful into objects of attraction. And then there, there are causes for delusion. When you don't see clearly, you get fooled, like a fish. Fish swallow hooks. Have you seen? 
In truth, the fish doesn't eat the hook, it eats the bait. If it, if it just saw the hook, it wouldn't bite. It doesn't think it's going to be swallowing the hook, but that's what happens because it's lured by the bait. When it bites, the hook catches its mouth and it can't get free. We people are the same, being lured by hair, nails and the rest. We shouldn't want them. Why do you want to carry these, in, these impermanent, uncertain things? Those who get attached to these things are deluded, thinking they're great, beautiful and wonderful, like a fish who swallows the bait. Uh, a frequent uh, subject of Lumpur's talks is his teeth. That, uh, many, in a number of his other Dhamma talks, he ref when, he was, uh, uh, when he was a young lad, he was very, very proud of his shiny white teeth. And he used to take. Uh, he was grew up in a poor farming community, but uh, and I don't don't think there was a lot of mirrors around. But still, <laughs> he was very very fond of his, his uh, shiny white teeth, and he would make efforts to polish them with you know various different things, and and was really really proud of uh, of how how good his teeth were. And then he would point out how when he got uh, when he got older and his teeth started to have infections and gum problems and. Um, he said his uh, his teeth were a constant source of dukkha, and he would remember like how he would sort of, uh, be uh, admiring his teeth or thinking they were so wonderful, so beautiful, so special, and and now it's this kind of aching mess <laughs> in his jaw. And then he said uh, eventually uh, he uh, m most of his teeth had, had fallen out, and he uh, he uh, he was and he had a lot of uh, gum problems and uh, infections, and so he decided he was going to go to a dentist and have all the remaining teeth pulled out and thought, I'll just have false teeth, that'll, that'll solve all my problems. And he said he had 18 teeth pulled out in one go. And he said, the dentist said, I'm not going to do that. You, know, you, you, won't, you won't survive. He said, pull them all out, pull them out. They're nothing but trouble, pull them out. So he had 18 teeth pulled out all in one go. And he said, yeah, it nearly killed me. <laughs> <laughs> It was it was really painful. He said, but then I was deluded into thinking if I have false teeth, then my problems will be over. Because then you have all sorts of difficulties with the false teeth not fitting and uh, having their own own problems and difficulties. And so, but he would reflect back like, oh, I, I was so proud of my teeth. I thought they were so wonderful, so beautiful, so special. But uh, uh, the adinava, the the downside was that um, yeah, these are not permanent <laughs> and not without feeling, and uh, they are not dependable. So then he uses this image uh, again from um, very much based on northeast Thai life of of catching uh, catching fish, and that the 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 bait is the sense of oh I will look attractive or this is something reliable this is something that, that is good, having a skin that's like this or nails like this or a face like this or teeth like this, or hair like this, and that um, that um, Taking the bait, then we get the the, the hook. So, <laughs> admiring our beautiful shining white teeth in the mirror, then we we uh, uh, end up still being attached to our teeth when they're getting painful and, and falling out, and that they they disappoint us, and become a source of dukkha. So that having taken the bait, then we get the the effect of the the attachment, uh, the hook of of identification and attachment gets sunk in. The fish doesn't know what it's doing. It eats bait, but ends up caught on the hook. Then, however much it wants to escape, it can't. It's caught. Hair, nails, skin and teeth catch us in the same way. Once we get attached to them, ow! When finally we come to realize what's going on, it's difficult to get out. 
We might think about getting out of the world then, but we worry about our children, our possessions, all the sorts of things that fill up a life. We can end up bound by them, staying just where we are until death. This is being deluded, like the fish that is deluded by the bait. We're caught in the world because we think the five objects are attractive and wonderful, and we're absorbed by them in, uh, for our whole lives. In truth, it's a small thing, not a great matter, just a matter of a hook catching the fish's mouth. Please consider this. So, when you ordain and study Dharma in this way, you can be at ease. Even if you disrobe because of some previous commitment or a pressing matter, you should recall this and be careful, thinking about the hook. This can bring you peace, whether you are ordained or a lay, or a lay person. The time may be short now, but never mind. Don't be heedless. Contemplate these things. This is a meditation that you should learn and come to know, and it should instill some caution. People have no fear or caution because they don't know the truth of this. This is a brief meditation for all of you that you should learn. So the many of the, the people who are in the Lumpur Chah's latter years, he would do uh, temporary ordinations, people who are um, say about to go off to college or uh, being encouraged to, to join the monastery for their families. Um, uh, for a shorter period of time, originally he wouldn't uh, wouldn't take people on for for temporary ordinations, uh, but then in latter years he did. So that referred to, um, you know, uh, if even if you disrobe because of some previous commitment or a pressing matter, you should recall this. So um, around the time that I was ordained in '79, then at the beginning of the Vasa, there were I think about twenty or thirty of the people that were ordained were only just coming for the Vasa or or. or um, or part of it because they had to go off to college, or they, they had, uh, they were uh, encouraged to spend time in the monastery before they got married and that, that kind of thing. So <coughs> there wasn't a, a long-term commitment, but he's also encouraging people to, to take this kind of practice and teaching to heart because it'll serve uh, serve one well in the uh, in, in the long term. And that, as he said, like a, a hook getting into the 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 lip of a. A fish once the hook is in, it's difficult to to get out. Uh, speak, uh, speaking of Master Hua, um, another image that uh, he used, he said, um, "Following sensual desire is like a porcupine going down a land drain." We don't have many porcupines in this country, but we have hedgehogs. So if you imagine a hedgehog going into a land drain about ten centimeters, eight centimeters in diameter, so going in is easy, backing out is not so easy. <laughs> so that uh, the hedgehog you know, sort of wanders into the land drain, oh, something smells good down here, du -du 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 -du, following the, the attachment, the sense desire. But then when the hedgehog goes, oh, it's kind of pretty dark, there's nothing much to eat here, and I don't really like this. Oh, because all the spines are going against the, the, uh, the, the rim of the pipe, so it's, it's hard to back out. So that's, a, again, a very helpful and compelling image that... Uh, like, like a porcupine down a land drain or a hedgehog in a land drain, as you think, well, that smells good. <laughs> Before you go into the land drain, just consider, is how am I going to get out if I go in there? You know, it's not going to be possible to turn around, and my spines are not going to make it easy to, to back out. So you have to draw your spines in and work your way back very, very gently to, to get out. So that's the end of that section. Any thoughts, questions, reflections, comments? Disagreements? <laughs> okay, we can leave it there for today. <laughs>